disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tricia. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's Word? Let's pray together. Father, we pause now and open our hearts and open our ears and our minds to your truth and to your Word. And we pray, Lord, that you would send your Spirit in these next moments, that you would take your Word and drive it deeply into our hearts and change us with it. And prepare us to come and to meet you at your communion table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So a little question to get us started here. Kids, might need some help from adults in a minute, but we'll see. So here's the question. What is the difference between a movie theater and a gym? Drew. That's right, okay. So you go to a movie... To watch something, right? And then a gym, so a gym has basketballs in it. Also think about, I should clarify, I'm talking about a gym that has like workout equipment and weights and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty fundamentally different. At one, you actually go and you do things there. You're active, you know, you're, you're working, all of that kind of stuff. And the other one, you don't go to do anything. When I go to the movie... I don't want to do anything. I'm, I'm there to sit and be entertained, right? So what would happen if the gym, for instance, lost sight of their purpose? And they said, you know what? We're, attendance has been a little bit low. You know, membership has been low. We want to kind of get this up. We're going to start a new program. We're going to start to move some of our weights and machines out, and we're going to move some chairs in, okay? And we're going to start to show movies and we're going to start to just have classes here instead of workout. And we're actually, our, our personal trainers are going to be in here, and they're going to work out, like, in front of you to show you how to do things, but that's, that's what we're going to do here at the gym. What would you say about a gym that started to do that? Yay! Sandra said, yay, right? <laughs> there's, it's true, there's a part of me that wants the gym to be more like a movie, Sometimes I come to the gym and I'm like, oh, can I just walk in here and just sit and feel better about myself? But you would say to that gym, you would say to Grace, you know, Grace goes here to Grace Community. You'd say to Grace, who owns the local gym, you'd say, Jim, uh, Grace, I'm not sure you've, uh, you might have lost sight of what the purpose of a gym is, right? And it's very easy for organizations to lose sight of their purpose. So we're starting a new sermon series. Here we are at the beginning of the new year. And we always take this time to talk about mission, to renew our mission. What is it we're called to do? What is our central purpose as a church? And it's a great time to do that, especially as we're starting a new year. And really, it's a great time to take stock of your own life. And so we're talking about what is 
the core purpose of the church, and we're going to look to Scripture for that. But here's the reality for the church, and we see this, I think, very commonly in the Bible Belt. We see that the church so easily loses sight of its purpose, of its core mission, of what is it here to do. It's so easy for the church to move into this place where it's, it's entertaining, where it's trying to gather just more and more people, is more focused on attendance and building than it is on what our core calling and purpose as a church is. Dallas Willard says this, if you've ever read any of Dallas Willard, he is with Jesus now, but a great writer and thinker and pastor and professor, but he once said this, this is what he wrote, he said, the elephant in the church is non-discipleship in the pew. Now that's an interesting thing, you know, it's, he's kind of playing on that that saying that we have, what's the elephant in the room? You know, we say that whenever there's some big glaring issue that nobody wants to talk about. You know, if you've ever been in a situation, maybe this has happened in, a, in your family or in a roommate situation, there's some big issue that everybody just seems to be avoiding and not talking about and just kind of in denial of. And he's saying for the church, there's a big elephant right in the middle of the church. And the elephant in the middle of the church is that the church in our culture has abandoned its calling to discipleship. It's not discipling people. Rather, it is moving into entertainment or more focused on growing or, or consumeristic kind of ideas. How, how do we get people in here? And the reality is, as he says, as a result of this, Christians in our culture by and large, don't look much different from those who are non-Christians, who are in the world. And I think he's spot on. And I think that's a danger, not just for churches out there, like we've got it all figured out at Grace Community. I think this is a challenge for us. And this is a part of what we're going to focus on for the next two months as we're in this mission series. And here's what we're going to see is this passage starts us off in that is we're asking the question, what is the central purpose and calling and mission of the church? And what we'll see is that it is discipleship. That's what the church is called to. So we'll see in our passage, what is that? What does that mean? And how do we do it? That's what we'll see in this great passage. So here we're at Matthew 28. And this is one of those extremely important passages. I say that about every passage, I know. But I really mean it this time. This is what's called the Great Commission. This is the, the point at the end of the book of Matthew. And the Great Commission, these, these, this passage here, kind of ties up all of the things that we've seen in the book of Matthew. Kind of brings them all together in this moment. And it's the moment in which Jesus is giving his last words to his disciples. You know, anytime you give your last words to someone, you want those to be really your most important. I remember one time hearing a pastor about that moment of taking his, his now adult son to college for the first time, and he, he takes him, he's moving him into a dorm, and, and there's that moment where you got to leave, and some of you have faced that, I just, I can't even imagine that, but it's that moment where you're like, you know, I, I'm leaving now, you're on your own, and you can imagine that's a moment where you really want to say very, very important things. And I was just so captured by what he said to his son. This is a pastor named Crawford Loretz in Atlanta. And he looked at his son. He said, look me in the eyes. It was just a powerful moment. And he said, obey 
God. And then he left. And I thought, wow, that's a powerful moment, right? In that moment, you're wanting to say and to call someone to what's most important. That's what Jesus is doing here in the Great Commission. He's getting his disciples. It's on a mountain in Matthew, in the book of Matthew. Everything really important takes place on the mountain. The Sermon on the Mount, the Transfiguration, all these things happen on a mountain. And here it concludes on the mountain. He's with his disciples and he looks at them. He's about to leave and he says, here is what's most important. It's called the Great Commission. A commission is a, it's a mission that's given. It's, it's you're calling somebody, you're committing a purpose and a course to someone. This is given to the church. I think it's very easy to look at the Great Commission and just think only in terms of individual Christians. As, as an early believer, that's primarily how I thought about this. But the Great Commission is given to the church. He's speaking here to the apostles that after this are going to take this commission and go in the book of Acts and plant churches throughout the world obeying what he has called them to right in this passage. Also, you see in the commission, as the very heart, one of the central pieces to it is baptism. It's a main part of this calling. Well, baptism is something that's given to the church. It's something that, that Jesus has entrusted to the church. So, to just notice right here at the outset that the Great Commission is given as a central defining purpose and calling for the church. So as we think about this, think in terms of the church. Now, what does Jesus say? Well, we see there's two kind of bookends to what he says here in 18 and in 19. I don't want to focus on those, but they're extremely important. The first thing that he says In the second part of verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's critical for understanding the Great Commission. It's carried out under the authority of Jesus. He has all authority. It is his power. It is his ability that brings about the effectiveness of our calling. And then at the end of verse 21, second part of verse 20, he says, And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises... I am with you in this calling, always, to the very end. So to see those two bookends, we realize that this purpose of the church is carried out in the empowering presence of Jesus. Not something we do or we produce or we create. It's something that He does in and through us. But here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20, which is really the heart of, of this commission, and to say, what is it that he calls us to do? Verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The central purpose of the church is to make disciples. Now, just to start right off and to just notice that word that he uses there of disciples. You know, oftentimes whenever we're thinking about a follower of Jesus, the word, the term that we would use, the title we would use is Christian. Well, it's helpful to notice that in the New Testament, Christian is only used three times to describe followers of Jesus. And usually those were in pejorative terms, used by non-Christians against them. 
But the word disciple is used over 286 times to describe followers of Jesus. When someone comes to Jesus, in the New Testament, they're called a disciple. A disciple is not some special class of Christians. As you get, you know, those who believe in Jesus and what he did, well, they become Christians. But then if you want to go to the next level, if you're really interested in being a super Christian, well, then you can become a disciple. Now, what we see is that to be a follower of Jesus means you are a disciple. So what exactly does that mean? And I think in the following uh, part of that verse, Jesus describes what it means to be a disciple and to make a disciple. Now, the first thing to notice is that, um, well, let me say this. I remember as an early believer, whenever I thought about the Great Commission, I thought primarily in my mind of evangelism. That this essentially was a call to evangelism. I served with a campus ministry for four years on a college, two college campuses. And this was a very important passage, the Great Commission. And, and Campus Crusade for Christ that I worked for, the focus was like evangelism. It was all about evangelism. That was like the core purpose of this, uh, this ministry. And we talked about the Great Commission all the time. But as a young believer, I thought almost entirely in terms of evangelism. That this is... This is calling us to win people to Christ. Now, let me say this. It is calling us to do that. Not exclusively, but it certainly is. Look at the first thing that he says right after he says, go and make disciples. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To make a disciple first means to bring someone into union with Christ. That's what baptism is all about. It's the mark of being united to God, of getting that new identity, of being brought into his family, of having God's name put on you. Name is associated with identity. It's the, the, the mark, baptism is the mark of entering into God's family, into the church. So that is certainly a part of making disciples, but not exclusively so. And I, I just for somehow missed the rest of this verse for much of my early Christian life. Look at what Jesus says after this, and I wonder if many of us miss this. Not only baptizing them is what it means to make disciples, but verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus says, what does it mean to make a disciple? It means to teach them to obey everything I have commanded. To make a disciple means to teach someone to obey. To become a disciple means I'm someone who is learning to obey Jesus in every area of my life. Obedience is inseparable from discipleship. Now, whenever we think about teaching, I think we often think of like a classroom. We think of passive. We think there's a teacher, and then there's everyone in the class, and they're the teacher's speaking and they're learning, right? In Jesus' day, teaching was very different. Teaching was practical. Teaching was something you did engaging in life together. Teaching was something that you, you might describe something, you might show something, then you might say, the teacher might say to the student, okay, I want you to go and do this now. Here's a great example of the teaching he's talking about here. When I go to the gym, when I go to CrossFit, I go in, and I go in to be taught. 
right? At, at CrossFit, Grace is like the teacher. She actually calls it a class, CrossFit class. And you come in, and in this class, what do you do? You come in, and you do all of these movements with weights. Now, Lord have mercy, I'm so bad at many of these things. I mean, my form is terrible, it's awful, it's just, it's, it's bad. But what is Grace there for? She is the teacher. To sit there and say, hey, you're, I'm sorry, but your, your form's a little wrong. Let me show, let me show you how to do this. Okay, now you try it, okay? And she's in there, and much of what she does is encouraging and saying, come on, you can do this, come on, five more minutes, come on, do this. That is the sense of teaching that is talking here. Teaching you how to do it. Not just filling your head with information. Not just saying, hey, just academically, I want you to just understand stuff here. The goal of the teaching that he's talking about is applying the teachings of Jesus into how you live. Now, what would happen at CrossFit class if we walk in, we all walk in for the class, and instead of weights being around, there's chairs, And Grace says, come on, everyone come in, CrossFit class today. You're just going to sit there, and I'm going to teach you about CrossFit. I'm going to describe the history of CrossFit, and I'm going to talk about the various benefits of CrossFit. And then later in the thing, I'm going to actually work out, and I just want you to watch me, and then we're done for the day. Well, I might be really happy, but that wouldn't be very helpful for me, would it? Because the whole purpose is for me to come and to be trained. That is the concept of discipleship. That is the concept of what it means to train people, to teach people, to obey Jesus in every area of life. Here's the kind of idea of what it means to be a disciple, an apprentice. You know, we have different apprentices in in different vocations in life. You know what an apprentice is? An apprentice is someone who apprentices themselves to a master. You might think of a carpenter or some trade. This is very common in the trades. But an apprentice comes alongside a particular master at something. And they live with them. And they watch them. And they learn to imitate the master. They learn how they do their woodworking or whatever it might be. They're watching their particular methods and the way that they do it. And they're learning to imitate, to emulate the way that they do it. Relationship is key in it. That is the sense of discipleship. It's apprenticing yourself to Jesus. It's in relationship with Him, watching Him, watching how He goes about all that He does, how how He goes about life, how He lives His life. That's what Jesus focused on in His ministry, if you think about it. What did He do? He had 12 disciples. He lived with those men. And He taught them. He invested in them. He lived in front of them. He would say, okay, we're going to go over here and I want you to watch me. Okay, now next time, you're going to go do it. And then we'll come back and we'll debrief and we'll talk about how you did and we'll have some correction and some encouragement and then you'll go do it again. You see, the the goal and the focus for Jesus was teaching them how to live. Dallas Willard, I think, has a tremendous definition of what a disciple is. Here's his definition of disciple. Learning to live your life as Jesus would live your life if Jesus were living your life. Discipleship is learning to live your life the way that Jesus would live your life if he was living your life in relationship with him. Does that make sense? 
So it's all about becoming like Christ. Not, not doing exactly what He did, but, but learning to be like Him in my life. Right? In all the places that I've been called, in my work, in my family, in my relationships, in my neighborhood. It's constantly saying, in relationship with Him, Jesus, what does it mean to be like you here? To, to think like you here? To, to treat others the ways that you do? To love my, na- my enemies here? To love... Not only my neighbors, my enemies. Jesus actually said that. What does that, what what does it mean in this situation? What does it mean to be wholly surrendered to God in this area of my life? What what does it mean to live a life absent of worry and fear? Because I'm so trusting in the Father. You see, those are the that's the way of the kingdom that Jesus taught. And so discipleship is learning to live in that way in your life, in relationship with Jesus. And this is hard, a hard concept for us, I believe, in the church. It's a hard concept because what we tend to focus on, especially in our culture in the church, is on the initial part of the Christian life. We focus on the decision at the beginning of the Christian life. We focus on, like, Making sure you get into heaven when you die. You, you focus on getting ready to die as a Christian. Like make sure you believe the right things. Make sure you understand the right things so that you go to heaven when you die. And that, that might mean that you need to do a few certain religious things in your life. You know, you need to go to church. You need to be a general good person. All these different things. But the focus is not on my life now. It's not on becoming like Jesus In my life now. And yet when we come to the New Testament. That is exclusively the focus. C.S. Lewis says this. It's a great summary of the purpose of the church. The church exists to draw people into Christ. And to make them little Christ. Great way to put it. To bring people into Christ. Baptizing them in the name of Jesus. And then to make them like little Christ. To train us into becoming people that look like Jesus in our lives and in how we live. Now, I think when we hear this, this might strike a fear in us. Wait a minute. I, I'm, I'm afraid. Isn't this going to lead us into legalism? Is that a fear? Does that happen to you as we talk about this? Wait, are we talking about works righteousness here? What? What are we talking about? And I think, I think oftentimes that can be a fear that prevents us from talking about obedience because we're afraid that we're going to start earning our salvation, right? But here, let's just be clear on the gospel. And the gospel is at the very heart of discipleship. You cannot be accepted by God on the basis of what you do, period. You, we, we are not accepted before the Father. We are not saved On the basis of obedience. We're not saved on the basis of becoming like Jesus. And and it is so easy to move into that place. It's so easy to to begin to look at how am I doing? How am I progressing? How much like Jesus am I becoming to gauge how accepted we are before the Father? That's very easy to do. We'll say that right now. So the gospel is we're saved entirely by the work of another. But salvation's goal is to become like Jesus. 
a transformed life, a life that is increasingly looking like Jesus in every area of life is the goal of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. It's the evidence of salvation. Right? Justification and sanctification. Sanctification is becoming like Christ. Justification is being declared righteous and acceptable for the Father. They're interrelated. They, they cannot be separated. Here's Dallas Willard again. He says this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed only to earning. That's a great phrase to get down. Grace is not opposed to effort. Sometimes we think if I'm trying to obey, if I'm trying to grow, wait a minute, I'm getting into works righteousness, I'm denying grace. That's not true. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is most certainly opposed to earning. We can earn nothing. But yet, engaging ourselves in effort to become like Jesus is something for which grace empowers us. They fit together. So let's, let's apply this. Let's bring it down and apply it. Here's the question I think we've got to ask this morning. Am I a disciple of Jesus? That's just a fundamental question that all of us should ask. Am I a follower of Jesus? Am I a disciple? And then secondly, to just flesh that out more, am I seeking to live my life as Jesus would live my life if he were living my life? In my job, in my home, in my marriage, in my family, in my neighborhood? Am I seeking to change and become like Jesus? Just a great question. So imagine for a lot of us, for many of us here today, we'd say, yeah, I am. But I might not be a good disciple, right? And here's the good thing about discipleship. So Jesus' disciples were not that good of disciples, But they were his disciples. He didn't abandon them whenever they messed it up. He said, come on, come on, I've I've chosen you, you belong to me. Now let's talk about how you grow. Okay, so imagine that's where many of us are. So the question becomes, how do we grow? Maybe for some of us, we're just sitting here and we're hearing this and we're like, I don't know that I really want to become like Jesus that much. Yeah, I think for some of us, it thinks like, Becoming like Jesus is like not that fun, right? If we're honest, I think many things in the world and about this life are far more appealing than becoming like Jesus. And so I think a really important question is, how do I get to where I want that? Isn't that a great question? How do I get to the place where I actually want to be like Jesus? And here's what we're going to really focus on. I want to be real practical for the next two months. It is through our habits of devotion to Jesus that that desire grows. It's through our habits of devotion, those practices that we have in our life that begin to shape our hearts, that begin to shape our passion and our love and what we desire. Our habits are also so essential to discipleship to having regular practices where we're engaging with Jesus in His Word, in prayer, in fellowship with other believers. You know, our habits form us. We all know that from this right here. Apple knows that. All the advertisers know that. They know the way to shape you. 
is through the things that you are repetitively doing in your life. If you're always looking at your phone, if you're always, again, I just use personal example, checking, checking Georgia football recruiting, what am I likely to love with a great passion? Georgia football recruiting. And if I'm always looking at it, if I'm always talking about it, what are my children likely to love above all else? Georgia football, right? It's not rocket science. It is our habits that form us. Now, the reality is our lives are probably filled with habits that are forming us to love all kinds of different things. So what we're going to talk about is forming habits. And I want to encourage you this, this very week to start to develop habits for your life. I want to encourage you. Here, here's just some specific things to challenge you with. Okay? And you can modify it if you need to. Start the habit of daily prayer, kneeling prayer twice a day. Maybe morning and evening. Maybe after you get up and before you go to bed. Kneeling prayer. Why do I say kneeling? Well, the more that you involve your body, the more that it involves your heart. When was the last time you got down on your knees to pray? I did it this morning, and I'll just tell you right now, it's different. It's different than whenever I'm laying in my bed and praying. It's different than whenever I'm just praying in my head because it's involving me more, okay? So, kneeling prayer twice a day. Encounter God's Word each day. Now, we're going to mess this up, and that's okay. Don't mail it all in if you miss a day. It's okay. Just come back the next day. And where do you start? Well, read a psalm a day. Read a chapter in the book of Mark a day. The Gospels are a great place. If we're learning to live our life like Jesus, well, let's go look at Jesus' life and His teaching. We, we're trying to give you those resources to be able to do that, but I want to start there with those habits. Another habit is, we're, we're doing it right now, of weekly worship with God's people. That is a fundamental habit. You know, i got a friend who once told me, you got to do something 18 times for it to become a habit that you're inclined to do again. You know, whenever you start a habit, it's not natural. You're having to force yourself to do it. But once something becomes a habit, and I know this about all the other habits in my life, you are inclined to do it again. Like, it's, you've got a momentum in your heart to do it again. Now, this guy's a college basketball coach. He knew about habits. His whole goal in practice was to develop these habits for his players so that whenever they got into a game... They would just do it naturally. Well, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to develop habits of devotion to Jesus so that whenever you get to work, so that whenever you get home from work and you walk in and your family's there, whenever you're with your roommates, whenever you're with your neighbors, whenever you're coaching your team, it's second nature to live like Jesus as if Jesus were living your life. So that's what I want to encourage us to do. This morning we have the opportunity to engage in a really fundamental habit of devotion to Jesus, and that is communion. At the communion table, you know, there's something that, that is about this habit. And by the way, Jesus gave this to us. We didn't come up with this. We didn't say, hey, what's a clever way for us to do church? Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, something to do over and over and over as a habit. And through communion... 
we somehow get into the Last Supper. You know, at the Last Supper, Jesus is sitting with his, his disciples. And he's feeding them. And they're with Jesus, intimately at a meal. Right? And somehow, we get to be with Jesus at this meal. It's mysterious. I don't know. And it's even better for us. We might think, man, what would it be like to be at the Last Supper and actually at the table with Jesus? Well, listen, we got it better. It might not feel that way, but we have it better because we actually feed on Jesus at this table. So I want to invite you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, to come to this table and feast upon him by faith. Each time that we come to the table, we prepare our hearts through confession and through receiving forgiveness. So we've got a prayer of confession that we're going to pray together. Confession, by the way, is a tremendous spiritual habit to form our hearts and form us for grace. So let's pray this prayer of confession together is one. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we have refused to hear the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now take a few moments to confess silently your sins to the Lord. Father, we do confess that we, each of us, have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed this week and even this very day. We stand as a people in desperate need of your forgiveness and your pardon and for you to cover us and to take our shame and take our guilt away. And so we praise you that you have done all of those things in the work of Jesus. So we release our sins to you and receive from you forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now hear these words of assurance, assuring us of our pardon and forgiveness in Jesus. From the book of 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So a few words about communion here. If you're new here, the way that we do communion is that we come forward and we kneel and receive communion. Communion is for only those who are disciples of Jesus. That is, those who are in relationship with Him and seeking to follow Him with their life. So if that's not you and you're, or you're unsure of where you are with that, Scripture warns us not to take communion, but rather, I would encourage you, consider 
becoming his disciple. I'd love to talk about what that means after the service. I would love to have that conversation. If you wish not to take communion for any reason, whenever you, you, can, you can remain seated and sing through the songs and consider what, we're talking, what we've talked about. Or you can come forward and be prayed for. If you want to be prayed for and not receive communion, just put your hands down like this and it'll let us know, I want to be prayed for but not take communion. And we would love to pray for you in that. But if you are a disciple of Jesus and, and you long for him to transform you, I invite you to come and to just feast upon Jesus by faith. On the night in which he was betrayed, as Jesus was with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And in like manner, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink from it, all of you. For as often as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we invite you, disciples of Jesus, come and feast upon Christ by faith.